This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Schinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Schinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hello, this is WTF Bach, the sobriquet of the much less famous Evan Schinners. The goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach, to be your guide in uncovering certain aspects of the construction of Bach's music, which will help you come away with a deeper appreciation. You will come away having heard Bach's music without introduction, and then later knowing exactly what to set your ears upon. Now, the idea struck me the other day. I was reading through all the individual parts to a cantata, you know, a composition with, say, two violin parts, two viola parts, flutes, all ranges of singers, drums even. I put on a recording and I sit down saying, okay, I'm going to play the bass line. I play it through, then I restart the recording and say, okay, now I'm going to sing the alto voice with the altos and I restart the recording and I do that until I've gone through every single part. And then the thought occurred to me, perhaps the reason that musicians are obsessed with Bach, because we all are, cellists, flautists, singers, everybody. Perhaps it's that with every single part, there's never one which seems like it is the easy part. There's never one voice or one instrument which seems like Bach just put it there because he needed to fill out the texture. In fact, with every single part, even the timpani, which is only usually just two notes, it's so hard, it works your brain in just the right way. You need to focus intensely, but never too much. It's never beyond your capability. So if you're a violinist, it's never impossible to play what he has there but it's almost impossible. Or if you're a soprano, again, it's never impossible. It's almost impossible. But that feeling you come away with in the end is that Bach was challenging you specifically. No matter what your role was in the music, he's created something that requires you to push yourself and to grow as a musician in order to pull that off. And in that way, you feel like he wrote the music for you specifically. He's just perfectly between the two limits of not being difficult enough and being impossible that I feel pretty much most composers are on one or the other end, but that when people get together and perform Bach, there is great celebration, great growth. That is one of the miracles, one of the many miracles of Bach. And it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite piano players of all time, Thelonious Monk, what he said about composition. He said, those pieces were written so as to have something to play and get cats interested enough to come to rehearsal. And Bach's music is certainly just that. All things Johann Sebastian Bach? You're telling me there's a podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach and I can tune in? Thank you, thank you everyone for your feedback, your emails. I've received recommended listening, reading, questions, suggestions. It's been a rewarding experience for me to know that there are so many of you who are interested in this subject. And as of now, I believe I'm able to get back to each and every one of you. But please recommend this podcast to all your musician friends, your scientist and mathematician friends, your magician friends, your ex-boyfriends, until I have the happy problem of struggling to keep up with you. But I can't stress enough how really, truly rewarding it is to hear from those of you who are listening, so thank you. Now, we've discussed, dissected, analyzed, we've been in pretty deep with the first four fugues that kick off the art of fugue, and that is the closing of a chapter. Bach seems to structure this giant work around the number four, and after these first four fugues, that's the end of chapter one. If we were to hear this piece in recital, we'd now be on to the fifth fugue, which is the opening of a new chapter of Stretto Fugues, and I had promised that in this episode we'd finally have have our first stretto fugue. There would be so much stretto in it that your brains would be squeezed beyond comfort. But I'm going
going to change the course just a little bit. You see, the Art of Fugue is a work of 14 fugues and four canons based around the same subject. Uh, the great Isaac Gillespie, when talking to me about this podcast, used a phrase that I really like. He said, it seems like you're saying that Bach is searching for the universal Lego piece. And I think that's just perfect. This subject of the Art of Fugue is the universal Lego piece of music. So shout out to him for coming up with that phrase. And these fugues are arranged in the order of complexity. As we saw, the second fugue is a little more chromatic than the first. The third is upside down. And this will go on until we reach the 14th fugue at the end in four subjects, the longest, most chromatic of all, the grand finale of the Art of Fugue, perhaps the grand finale of Bach's entire life. But what about those four canons? Well, they come at the end, after the 14 fugues, as sort of an appendix. They're often not performed, but they highlight such an exciting part of Bach's mind and such a wonderful compositional technique that I want to show them to you now, after this closing of chapter one, so that we don't have to wait until we discuss every single fugue before we even begin to touch on the canons. So that's the plan. Here, the first canon after the first chapter of Simple Fugues, the second canon after the second chapter of Stretto Fugues, and onward. Okay, so here is the great one, Gustav Leonhardt playing the first canon from the Art of Fugue.
we are all indebted to Mr. Leonhardt's service to this world. Now, it is very different from anything we've heard up until this point. For example, it has less than four voices. It only has two voices, the right hand and the left hand. This is the canon at the octave, called by Bach, canon at the hypodiapason. That's the Greek word for octave, which was later changed in the print version by his son, to canon at the ottava, the Italian word for the same thing. Now, in the very, very first episode, I discussed what a canon is, and in the very previous episode, I discussed the main differences between the autograph score and the print. But to be brief, a canon is simply a line of music repeated at two different times. You could play your own canon by playing anything into a delay pedal. And the main differences between the autograph and the print well, Bach only oversaw half of the print, and then he died, and then his estate took it over, and there are all sorts of errors in the print. But let's discuss the music. The octave. What is an octave? What does it mean to have a canon at the octave? Well, the octave in music is the same note, but higher or lower. Middle C, and now you go an octave higher and not an octave lower. Now, we humans are wonderful with octaves. If you're sitting around singing happy birthday or whatever with a group of people, the men would be singing it an octave lower than the women. And it's not because we know what an octave is. It's because the octave exists in nature, and our ears have understood this principle long before our minds have called it an octave. So therefore, when Bach makes a canon at the octave, he's essentially taking the same strip of music and playing it in two different ranges, just as if a man and a woman were singing row, row, row your boat. I said you could play it with a delay pedal, so now we have to play this Obviously, we have to play this canon with a delay pedal. Okay, so here is the line of music that generates the canon without the delay pedal. Right there it would restart. Okay, now that's a bit crude uh, the way that it was played because I'm playing it to a metronome and that's really just the information. But I just want to show you that that's the information. That's quite a strip of music. That's a bit more complicated than row, row, row your boat. Now here it is with the delay pedal. The reason I had to play it with a metronome is because you have to play it with the metronome so that everything will line up. 
The next question is, where do you bring it in? You know, because canons only work when the imitating voice is imitating at the right time. So let's experiment. Let's not even, let's pretend like we don't know what the right place is. Okay, so obviously there were questionable sounds there. Let's try a different spot. Okay, at this point I'm beginning to worry that even playing it through a delay pedal won't work because I haven't played all of the notes with absolute computer-like mathematical precision. So why don't I line it up at the correct spot and then we'll see what happens. Okay, so you could see that that is in fact the correct place to bring in the imitating voice. However, it's still sort of wonky at parts and I've created the canon at the unison. Now Bach created the canon at the octave, but it occurred to me, I am on a computer. I could actually align all of these notes to the computer's grid. I could pitch the imitating voice down an octave and just for fun, why don't I put everything twice as fast? Okay, so yeah, that's the composition. You could see that it is in fact one strip of music just being played sort of with an echo, with a delay, and that is the canon at the octave. Now this question of where to imitate the imitating voice is fun to play with, but how do we really actually know where Bach wanted it to be imitated? Well, usually it will only work in one place, but actually in the autograph, Bach gives us this canon twice. Once he gives it in one line, in closed form, as he calls it, to show us that indeed this is a composition from one line of music, and then later he writes the canon out in full, the solution as it were. But actually in Bach's work called A Musical Offering, which contains 10 canons for none other than the King of Prussia, one of the canons he titles Quarendo in Vignettis, Seek and you shall find. And he doesn't actually show you where the right time to bring in the imitative voices, because he wanted the king to try out different points of imitation to find out which ones work. Okay, so let's say that you sit down to sing this canon with your friend, that lengthy strip of music. What a friend that would be. So you're singing and you come to the end of your strip of music, but your friend who's following you is still singing because he started after you. So you go back to the beginning, in which case the follower follows you and goes back to the beginning. And before you know it, you realize you're caught in this infinite loop of music. And that's really what a canon is. A canon is an infinite loop of music. And Bach will show you how to make this an infinite loop of music. He'll put a repeat sign where you could repeat it forever. But what if you actually want to finish? It seemed like Mr. Leonhardt finished earlier. Well, that's called cadential counterpoint. That's where Bach puts sort of like a unique bar of counterpoint that will bring things to a conclusion. So that's a unique line of music there that he only writes for the leader so that it can come to a peaceful conclusion. This. And it's nice because it has that cadential, that sort of closing inflection, especially here. Now, maybe some of you are asking, what about a third voice? What about a third imitator? You know, I've sung Row, Row, Row Your Boat with 59 people and it always works. Well, let's try it. Let's put a third voice the same distance after the second voice as the second was from the first. But this time I am going to use a computer so that everything lines up perfectly.
Okay. So, if some of you caught on to what I did there, I played the strip and I put on the echo ad infinitum. So actually there were an infinite number of voices coming in, but they were just softer and softer each time. But you could see that obviously the canon only works with two voices. Bach does, however, write canons where infinite numbers of voices could enter one after the other until eternity is finished. But these four canons in the Artifugue are only possible with two voices. Now getting back to the theory of the universal Lego piece, how does this subject, how does this crazy snake-like wild sounding subject have anything to do with the artifugue subject that we know. How does it have anything to do with this? As we saw in the fourth fugue, the subject is inverted. And so really we see that this canon at the octave is a filling out of that, especially you'll hear it if I play it like this. So that's again, and filled out is, as we see, it's very related. In fact, it's just a fleshing out, as it were, of just the skeleton. Now, I said earlier that the canons were arranged in order of complexity, but how does it really get much more complicated than this? I mean, this was a wild strip of music, and, you know, how could you create such a beautiful composition that follows such a strict, rigid rule, use the same rule, and make it even more complicated? Well, the octave, okay? This is the canon at the octave. We can call the octave a compound unison, okay? Unison, universe, it means one. Octave, octopus, it means eight. So you could find the compound interval of another interval by adding the number seven to it if you want. So the compound interval of a second is a ninth, and a third is a tenth, and you can go on, okay, until you have the compound 70th is a 77th, I suppose. But how can you make a canon more complicated itself? Well, you adjust the interval at which it is imitated. Okay, so I'll do this with my voice first. I'm going to say this sentence now I'm in a canon this sentence higher in a canon than the one higher I said. Than the one I said. <laughs> Aha, now that's going to be pretty hard to pull off musically and make it still sound good. But the canon after this will be at the tenth. That's the compound third. And after that will be the twelfth. That's the compound fifth. And the fourth canon is so complicated, I can't even begin to talk about it. Okay, so what's so hard about that? Well, let's try our go-to canon. Let's try row, row, row your boat at the tenth. It will sound like this. I mean, it sounds pretty cool to our modern ears, but you know, in the Baroque, that's completely unacceptable. And still, how interesting is row, row, row your boat? Okay, Bach is going to create this huge sprawling canon that still is somehow based on this subject here. And that's the second canon. All right, so just one final note, which deals with the great debate about the Art of Fugue. I said that the canons come as an appendix to the 14 fugues of the Art of Fugue, but even that is a matter of great debate among Bach scholars. See, what happened was this, Bach was going blind. 
And this guy, Mr. Schubler, is in charge of engraving these plates on copper. I gave the link to the free PDF where you can actually see what these, what the original print of the Art of Fugue looks like. They're truly beautiful, so go, go see that. Okay, so Bach has overseen successfully the first 13 fugues. He's going blind. He senses he's dying. He's unable to copy out the final fugue for the engraver for Mr. Schubler in time. He tells him, go ahead and work on the canons, but he tells Schubler to leave six pages blank after the 13th fugue where the final fugue should go. Then Bach dies. And then his sons and widow inherit a mess of problems. They don't understand the order. What's more, they are going broke. Bach's music is not really top 40 at the time, and so they need to get this out there and make money off the printing of this edition. And the family sees that Bach owes this Mr. Schubler some money for engraving, so they go to him and ask what's up. Now, Mr. Schubler says that he was instructed to leave six pages blank for the final fugue, so the family goes home to look for this final fugue, but they can't find the completion of this fugue. But Bach was a very precise man. He paginated the blank pages even. He knew exactly how long it was. Obviously, he never wasted paper. He clearly completed this, or else how would he have told Schubler to leave that many pages blank? But the family can only find a few of these pages. So now the family has to fill up these six pages with stuff. So they put at least one fugue, which is an early draft of another fugue, and then they put in the canons, but beginning with the most difficult canon, and then they put in a fugue arranged for two harpsichords, which is an arrangement of the other fugue, and as a note of apology to those who are purchasing this edition, they say, we're sorry we can't find the final fugue, and here is something that he dictated on his deathbed, which is a chorale, which is in G major. I think it's a subject of another podcast. But suffice it to say, Canadian musicologist Gregory Butler in the 80s, using infrared photography, I don't really exactly understand how or what he found, but he found some numbers or found the quality of the paper, he found some proof that Bach had ordered these pages to be blank and through this knowledge can now reconstruct the correct order of the Art of Fugue, which he believes is Fugues 1 through 14 and then the Canons. And then in the 90s, this other guy comes along and he says, actually, page numbers are not. The Canons have to come after the Double Fugues and the Triple Fugues, and he's got all sorts of numbers and everything to prove it. He says, look, the canons of the musical offering and the Goldberg variations were never copied out, so indeed they didn't mean to be played as part of the set, but Bach wrote the canons from the Art of Fugue from their original closed forms. He bothered to copy all of them into solutions, therefore they should be played, and what's more, they need to be played after the following pieces, blah, blah, blah. Let's just say that Mr. Gregory Butler and Mr. Rechsteiner don't get along about the Art of Fugue. And still another theory is the one that says after each chapter, after the Simple Fugues, then the Stretto Fugues, the canons should comes to sort of punctuate the chapters. And that's kind of the scheme that I'm going with at the moment, but that's only for the sake of the podcast, because were I to have to put my money where Bach intended these canons to come, I'm going with Mr. Butler and his infrared camera. So, Mr. Butler, guest on my show. There can't be too many podcasts giving you shout outs. Thank you guys for listening. You are listening to the WTF Bach Podcast. What a great day to be listening to WTF Bach. To listen to the music referenced in this episode, check the episode description. We are a brand new podcast and we want to hear from you. Got suggestions? You want a specific piece of Bach analyzed by Evan just for you? You can write to us. You want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach Podcast. Bach at WTFBach.com. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. WTF Find the links in the episode description. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for, for listening. listening.